you have your Bibles open to Romans 13, you only need to look back one chapter to 12. If you remember, we're making pancakes. We're talking about how important it is to make good pancakes. In fact, we will go as far as to say that anything that you're going to add to the pancake batter, without there being batter, is going to be batter. Nobody? Wow, okay. But um, We've been taking a look at spiritual gifts, and we're in the middle of a of a sermon series called The Gifts in the Body. And the problem is, is it would be really easy for us to go through and to just quickly name off the gifts, give a little bit of information about it, and move on with life. But that's not what we're looking to do, and I don't believe that that's the Lord's will for Grace Bible Church. I believe that if the spiritual gifts are something that is only giving during this age of the church, then it is vitally important that we have an intimate working knowledge, biblically speaking, of what these spiritual gifts are, and that we are implementing them into the local body of Christ here as we are responsible for it. And I also believe that it will be a major factor regarding our time when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for all the things that we've done while in the body, whether it's good or whether it's bad. Now remember, no one else in any other time period had spiritual gifts. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit, not the upon us Holy Spirit. That's not saying there's different Holy Spirits. I'm saying that now in this age, he's operating in a different way. And it's because he desires to do God's work through us. And so when you became a believer in Christ, you were automatically put into a position where you have a spiritual gift, at least one. And he desires for us to so know that and so be all about that gift and learning more, cultivating it, exercising it, honing it, and using it for the betterment of the body of Christ, that to not do so would be to miss out on major realms of blessing that he desires to carry the entire body in. In fact, we would end up being a lopsided body. And if you have a lopsided body, you only walk in circles. And that's what a lot of churches do. A lot of times, the pastor may understand their gifting as teacher or preaching or exhortation, or what have you, and be doing that because that's part of what their occupation is, their calling is. But one thing to remember is, is that every single person who is a believer in Christ has at least one spiritual gift, and that spiritual gift deserves to be recognized and exercised for the betterment of the body as a whole. Now, while we could bring those up by themselves, nothing in the Bible is simply by itself. All of it has a context to go in. And so after we dealt with a few of these spiritual gifts, we would pick up in verse 9 of chapter 12 in order to give the surrounding environment. What does a fellowship culture look like within the body of Christ so that spiritual gifts can be properly, spiritually exercised? Here we go. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing 
hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward who? One another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The previous two Sundays together, we have looked at verses 9 through 13 and verses 14 through 16. And today we are going to finish this out with 17 through 21 of understanding what an environment looks like. How the culture of the church is to be different so that spiritual gifts can be properly exercised. Now back to our pancake analogy. If spiritual gifts are the blueberries, the culture of the church, and how they exist and thrive and operate with one another, sensitivity to the Word of God, devotion to prayer, all of those things are what make up the quality of the batter of which these blueberries fall in. If you have blueberries by themselves and throw them on the griddle, what happens? They don't just get burned, they get stinky. Go ahead and say it, stinky. Too often, too often, too often churches stink. Let's be honest. And why is that? Well, a lot of times they hone in on what I need to get done. But the culture that's supposed to spiritually facilitate that is lacking. And we don't want to run the risk of, oh, I'm so excited about spiritual gifts and I'm learning about this stuff and the Word of God is really speaking to me about this and I've got my paper and I've filled out my survey and I've got a lot of questions for Jeremy about this and I'm not for sure and I don't know what's going on. Why are my numbers so low? You guys are all about that and I love it because you're threaded in and you want to know. And there's, some, there's everything to be said about being hungry for asking the question, how's God working in my life? Fantastic. Remember, we're going to take this survey again at the end and it's not foolproof. It's okay. But the most important thing that we understand is that without a culture that is resonating for these things to be operating in, you can operate your spiritual gift all day long and it's going to be a flesh gift. There's something that's got to happen at the base level where the Spirit works in order for these heightened opportunities for individual edifying of the body to really find its home and to be able to speak goodness into each other's lives. And so that's why we've been taking this time to slow down a little bit, to focus a little bit more on what things need to look at. Now, my hope for you, and since we're not doing anything directly with our spiritual gifts papers right now, is that you would take out this notes page, half sheet from your bulletin. 
because I'm going to ask you to jot down whatever the Lord brings to your mind about what I'm going to go through in the passage. And these are going to be your points of reflection and application because we're going to have a time at the end of about five to ten minutes to really pray about this. If all we're going to do is just go through this, and that's great, he said some things, and I can't really tell you what the sermon's about by one o'clock. You've wasted your time, I've wasted my time, we've wasted the Spirit's time. But if we're going to sit down and take a moment of uninterrupted devotion to ask God the question, how does my life need to be different now that what I've heard? Where does Paul set the idea of the culture of the local church? And where do I stand in, 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 in tangent to that, in connection to that? I think that writing these things down might help you. The church operates in relationships. That's God's design. The Trinity is a relationship. The Trinity has a loving relationship. The Trinity has always had a loving relationship, even before time began, even before creation was established. Jesus tells us that in John 17. Father, love them with the love that I had with you before the foundation of the world. That's a pretty fantastic Fantastic point to make that will cause our minds to really get committed in devotion quickly. A love that's eternal is the idea. And that's what's to exist in the relationships of the body of Christ. But let's be honest, is every relationship in the body of Christ harmonious? No. In fact, one of the most horrible things about being in the church is when there's tension between believers. Paul dealt with this, right? Barnabas wanted to take Mark. Paul didn't want to take Mark. Come on, he's a young guy. We're all about disciples, right? Because Barnabas is an encourager, right? He's exhorting. Let's take him. The Lord told us to disciple. We want to do that, right? We got to come alongside him and lead him in the right path. And I can see Paul. He abandoned us. We're all about the truth and he left us. Left us behind. Left us hanging. We don't need him. Paul, we do need him. Your heart's wrong on this. How do we know Paul's heart was wrong on this? Because later on he said, send Mark to me quickly. When he knew the end of his life was coming up, he called on Mark to be involved. That's a pretty good thing. And he said they had no small dissension, which I hate the way that's phrased because what it means is, And they decided they couldn't minister anymore, and one went one way and one went the other way. Well, we're going here. You know, it's almost like you take that side, we're taking this side. And there's tensions amongst the harmonious relationships of believers in Christ who have equal standing and equal acceptance and the same Holy Spirit and the same scriptures that are available, but there is this. We hear that? Doesn't feel very good on my knuckles, that's for sure. Sputting of heads. Every opportunity is an opportunity for Christ. Now, I know that sounds redundant, but think about it for a moment. And it all boils down to choices. That's the amazing thing that God has done. God has given you a choice of how you live your life. This is why some of you teenagers think that your parents are so dumb. But that's not what I want to do. Well, they've been there, and then you're, they're telling you how that worked out, what you want to do. And I know you're not going to realize that until you're 27 years old. I get it. 
You're going to be 27 going, gosh, I was wrong. Parents are going to be like, finally. <laughs> Praise God. We've been praying about this for years, right? Because they've been there and done that, got the T-shirt. Found that tension. And just like that is no different from our relationship to the Word of God. We either have a choice to obey and become a conduit for the truth to flow through. Or we disobey what God clearly tells us. We stop mincing about words. We disobey. And all of a sudden you recognize that what God desires to get accomplished in these relationships, to ease this tension, to deal with them well, we've actually become the obstruction because of our disobedience. And truth cannot go any further with us. We've hit our ceiling. We've hit a ceiling that we've created. Paul is going to give us instructions. How do you deal with the hard times? You can't control anybody else, can you? Can you? Yes. I can't control Jay. Good grief. Because if we got our picture back there, because if I could, I would. Unbelievable. These two. And you probably think, you know what, if I could control Jeff and Jay, I would too. You ever try controlling your kids? Sometimes we do that in stores, right? We hear screaming over in aisle nine. We're like, somebody needs to control those kids. You ever tried? Can you control them? Not unless you break all their legs and render them paralyzed. And they're still going to think against you if that happens. Coach them, love them, discipline them, teach them right from wrong. But let's be honest, you can't control anybody. You can't control anybody. Because if you do, they grow up to resent you. And I've heard plenty of stories about parents who are having to deal with the resentment of their grown children. Were they bad kids? Well, maybe sometimes. Maybe a lot of their lot in life they've asked for because they've made stupid choices. That's what people do. Some of it had to do with the fact that they so tried to control me and they so restricted me, I couldn't function. You know why? Because we were never meant to control other people. That's not our area. Who were we meant to control? Ourselves. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I know this from personal experience, so I can speak firsthand on this, and I have a PhD in it. I'm enough to handle. Okay? And I'm going to guarantee that on the inside looking out, you are too. But as far as our relationships with one another, Paul's going to tell us, how do you control yourself in making the right choices when the situation's hard? Look at verse 17. Never. Everybody see that? Never. You know what that word is in the Greek? Never, 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 never. Never. This is something you should never do. Put your hand on a hot burner. Should you ever do that? You say, never. Do we still do that sometimes? Put a paper clip in a light socket. Is that something you should never do? Do we find people doing that? Yeah, but you should never do it. Notice it comes down to the choice. Because with every choice, there's a consequence. Notice that Paul wants to warn us. Never pay back evil for evil to who? 
Is that just redeemed people? No. That's the redeemed and the unredeemed. Anyone. The spectrum is that wide. Now we sit here and we say, okay, I expect for the world, if they have an opposition to truth, to want to be hostile towards me sometimes. I get that kind of hostility that takes place. But let's not kid ourselves that friction doesn't happen in the church. Believers don't always treat each other well. We're not always selflessly considerate. Now let me go ahead and tell you this, because this is one of the reasons why we looked at what we looked at before. And I think it's important that we recognize this. Because we're not, when we're not operating that way with one another in the body of Christ, here's the, here's the, the plain fact. It's because we really don't love each other. Well, that, that, sounds, that sounds absurd. Of course I love them. Really? In a selfless way that's not expecting anything in return? If that's the case, why are you so mad? You shouldn't be expecting anything. Oh. See, we've made what should be a condition, an unconditional love that operates within the body of Christ, a conditional love that it's easy to love those when we scratch their back as long as when we turn around, they're scratching ours. When that gets in the flip side and all of a sudden we find that evil has come between us. That somebody's actually wronged us in a wrong way. And we look at that and we say, that's plainly sin. How come no one can see that, that that's what's messing up this harmonious body of Christ, this relationship that we're supposed to be having, this fellowship, this one anothering that we're supposed to be doing? Yeah, it's wrong. You can shine light on it all day long from the Word of God. You cannot control it. But you can control how you respond to it. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Evil is never the solution to a wrong situation. It is never an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Doesn't it say that in the Old Testament? Yes, you are not Israel, you are not under the law. That is not how you operate. We are in an economy of grace. So I'm just supposed to let that go? Well, we can talk about how to deal with it, how to pray about it. We can talk about those things. But the initial answer that is as plain as day on a marquee, evil is never the answer to pay back an evil situation. It should never even be on the radar. It's completely off the chart. Now notice the next part that he says to us there. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Everybody see that word respect? If you look over in your marginal note of the NASB, it's the idea of taking the time to not make a drastic decision, but instead you're going to camp out mentally for a moment and think through it before you move forward. Take the time to camp out and mentally consider what is right in the sight of who? All men, is that redeemed people only? No, it's redeemed and unredeemed. So somebody commits evil against me, harm against me, in an interpersonal relationship, especially within the body of Christ. We'll let the world be the world, but let's talk about right here in home. And I'm not to repay them back to evil. However I move forward, there needs to be a careful, cognitive understanding what is right in this situation. Regardless of what we want to think or believe, the world is watching. Other believers are watching. 
and how we move forward has to be in a way of right. We don't want to move forward in a way of wrong. Moving forward in a way of wrong leads to more wrong. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be more wrong. I'm wrong enough as it is. I'd like some right in my life. Notice that Paul gives us that prescription. Those who are older in this church, we're looking to you for the beacon of wisdom. Because those who are younger in this church need to know how to live this life. You've been there. You've lived it. So the choices that you make in the direction of right need to be talked about and celebrated and used as a means of encouragement amongst the body of Christ. Outside these walls, they're not getting it. Outside of these walls, the the world carries nothing in order to lead us in paths of righteousness. We have to find that in-house. We have to find that in one another. That's the direction that Paul leads us. Look what he says next. Verse 18, <clears throat> if possible, now here, we love that because all of a sudden our collars got a little bit looser, right? It's not a never, it's a, okay, I can breathe a little bit better. If possible, notice what it says, so far as it depends on who? You. Now, something that might help you if you mark in your Bible, you might want to put a little arrow next to you and right next to that, personal responsibility the only person that you can control is you so the situation being what it is if it's possible as long as it depends on your person the choices you make how you move forward how you're thinking about this look where he leads us be at peace with all men How many? Who? All. Redeemed only? No, redeemed and unredeemed. But notice where the place of responsibility is. It's all in our court. We say the ball's in your court, right? That's how we normally talk about that. When the ball leaves our court, it's going in a direction of peace. If possible, as long as you can do something about the situation, it needs to be at peace. Well, they're not listening. Well, they're not responding. Well, they're not repenting. Well, they're not willing to do this. Cool. You're not here to to worry about them. The fact that we're seeking peace in a relationship is not contingent upon whether or not they are receiving the peace that we're putting out there. We throw the ball at them, we can't make them catch it. But what we can do is make sure that we're throwing the ball correctly. It's got to be from a position of peace. Now you say, man, that's not possible. And if we really break it down, the situation I'm thinking about right now in my life, and the turmoil I have with some people, and the struggle that it is, because I know those people, and I know how they act, and I know how they respond. And when you're dealing with prideful, arrogant believers in Christ, because they're out there, <laughs> hello. You can't control that, can you? See, the sad thing about that, that's a heart issue. And what that is, is that's reflective upon where their fellowship with the Lord is. See, that's exactly how these tensions creep up. The tensions creep up because somebody's out of fellowship. If not both parties. 
You say, well, how in the world do you rectify that in peace? Number one, remember, you're not worried about their side of it. You're not. They're going to do what they're going to do. You can encourage them with the word, but if that's the situation, then they're probably not going to receive it well. You can pray for them, absolutely. Get God's hand involved because he's the heart changer. Nobody else is. We try to be the heart changer. Sometimes you wives try to be the Holy Spirit heart changer on your husband. Stop it. That's not your role. Quit. Sit down. I make anybody mad? See, now we got tension in our interpersonal relationships. I'm trying to have peace. Maybe you're out of fellowship. I don't know. <laughs> Dig that hole. Right? It is a two-way street. But let's be honest. Sometimes attention is created in those situations like that. Pride gets in the way. When pride, is, when, when pride is present, fellowship is not. Be guaranteed of it. The idea of what it is to have an authentic relationship, not just with the Lord, but brothers and sisters in Christ, it is harmonious, thriving, growing, of which we are a conduit to which Christ's life is flowing through us, is always stopped by pride. Pride is the great constrictor of fruitful relationships. And so why I can't worry about who's holding the noose on the other side and killing these things. What I can do is be sensitive to the Lord in my relationship with him and say, if possible, as long as what I can do in this situation, I need to be at peace. Now understand, peace is not becoming a doormat for that person. When you become a doormat for somebody who is prideful and arrogant within the body, you have actually made yourself an opportunity of which they can sin more. Why? Because they keep being abusive. Don't be a doormat. Christian submission to one another was never a call to be a doormat. It's not to take abuse. Abuse will come in its time. The world's going to give us plenty of that. Believe it. But the idea of being at peace is, well, I don't understand. I've been over backwards to do everything for them, and they're still like this, and they're still acting like that's because who they are, and it's a heart issue. They're a jerk in Christ. And that's what we deal with because we deal with carnal believers. We recognize that. And I tell you what, that doesn't give us a means of setting up the soapbox and pointing the finger, you are a jerk in Christ. No. What it helps us do is motivate our hearts to pray for that person. The heart needs to be changed. It's a heart issue. The heart is hard. Only Jesus can change the heart. So we seek to live at peace. Now here's the interesting thing. Well, how do I achieve peace in that? And here's the dreaded, dreaded ingredient that people run from. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is the hardest thing to take place in the church. Because when we've been wronged personally, and it's redundant, we take it personal. And no one understands how we've been hurt. And no one can begin to identify the trouble that this has caused me. And we personalize that and we begin to internalize that. And if we are not looking for forgiveness, being kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us, there's our model for forgiveness. If that's not how we deal with this, that sin will get into the ground of our heart. 
will create deep roots where love should be rooted and grounded. And it will generate bitterness that affects us for the rest of our days. Now, I know the argument. The argument is, Jeremy, you don't understand. They don't deserve forgiveness. Yes, I understand it. That's why they needed a Savior. Just because I'm a saved person, I'm a redeemed person, doesn't mean I need Jesus less. If anything, I need him more because I'm becoming much more acutely aware of ongoing sin in my life. And it's got to be crucified. I've already died to sin and I've been raised with him from the grave. I'm just not living in it or believing it at that moment. So even these factitious situations have got to come under the blood of Christ. Forgiveness has to take place. They don't deserve it. No, they don't deserve it. Neither did I. Neither did you. But notice that's not the model that Paul ever gives in the Scriptures. As long as they deserve it, forgive them. Can you imagine that? You're like, well, gosh, that was real easy. I'm done. Nobody's getting my forgiveness. I'm just going to sit here and be a, a bitter old hermit for forever. Find me a tent out in the middle of nowhere. I'm done. Right? Why bother? Why bother with relationships? Why bother? Number one, we're the body of Christ. We need to be involved in that. Number two, the prototype that is set forward, the model of which to look at, is God's forgiveness of us in Christ. How much did God forgive you and me in Christ? How much? All. Everything. Remember, all sin was future when Jesus died for us. Everything that we would do and hadn't done yet. That's how much God forgave. There's our model. Did we deserve it? No, he forgave anyway, didn't he? Now here's the question. What motivates the forgiveness of undeserving people at one's own personal expense? What motivates that? Love. For God so loved, right? While we were sinners, right? God demonstrates his love and that while we were sinners, Christ died. It's love. It's love that pushes it forward. Right, This life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So the situation that comes in prayer with the Lord, as far as what, we're personal responsible, what we are personally responsible is, is Lord, even though this person has wronged me, my love for them can't afford to be diminished. Because if that's the case, my forgiveness for them will be completely diminished. You have to call on supernatural help. Because only a supernatural love can overcome that. The tabloids are full of people who are not forgiving. We could be just like them, right? Anybody's goal to be conformed to the image of Kim Kardashian. I didn't think so. Most of it would be plastic, and you don't want that. But anyway, moving on. Oh, did I say that out loud? My bad. Okay. <laughs> moving back to this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And the way to do that is to be ready to forgive. We have to reflect on the cross in that matter. Verse 19. Never. Uh-oh. That's a 17 word, isn't it? Never. Never, ever, ever, ever. Take your own revenge, beloved. And you're like, but I already got the cold dish. Right? Revenge is a dish best served cold. But you don't understand all the ways that I've already devised 
and the detailed blueprints in my mind of how I'm going to stick it to that person. Right? What's that? Edgar Allan Poe. Because let's be honest, deep down we're telling ourselves it would feel so good. It would feel so good. It would what so good? Feel. Huh, where's that on our train? In the back it should be, right? Matthew Hansen is calling during church. Does he not know that you're in church? And his ringtone is Harry Potter. There you go, man. Scott, I forgive you. See, I'm at peace. I don't know where he's at, but I'm at peace. Never take your own revenge. Here's what's interesting. Notice that that targets the flesh. Because that's what you want to do, isn't it? They wronged me. Never repay one evil for evil. Not to anyone. Never take your own revenge. But revenge is so sweet, is it? These are the things that the world has taught us. Do they got it right? People are still getting revenge for everything. We got Christians in the news who are suing one another. Well, some of you have seen this. Man, it's the most God-glorifying thing I've ever read in black and white. Suing your brothers and sisters in Christ. Look, um, I could tell you. Now, moving on. Never take your own revenge, beloved. But here it is. But leave room for the wrath of God. Recognize that when you're wronged, if you respond with evil and revenge in this situation, you have tread on God's ground, not yours. That is not a place for you to be. We are not proper exactors of justice. Raise your hand if you've ever been cut off. You've been driving, you've been cut off. Okay, right? You're driving along and they cut you off and you think in your mind, don't tell me. It's a holy place. But think for a second. Isn't it usually what we think after they cut us off and maybe what pops out of our mouth after they cut us off? Isn't it way worse than just cutting them off back to level the playing field? Is it not? Am I the only person who's thought this? It's like I'm going to slash your tires and put sugar in your gas tank and, you know, feed your dog chocolate. I don't know. Whatever. Oh, oh not Fido. I want to say this really clear. All of you are some of the biggest liars I've ever seen in my life. Okay? Be, be real clear about this. You've thought horrible things about somebody who's cut you off or wronged you in some way, and it was always way more than what they just did. It was always over the top and thought, good grief, if I was a judge on a bench, if I took something personal, that's why they throw out those cases. Are you related in any way to anybody on the jury? Are you related to anybody in any way? Judge? And they move people on. Why? Because they know when you put that in there and they don't have the chance to be unbiased, you will take advantage and you will break somebody if you get the chance. Because that is the depths of evil that the human heart is possible in making. So what do you do? How does this get rectified then? Well, I've been wronged in some way. 
the spirits of slain saints underneath the altar of God in heaven cry out, Lord, how long until you avenge our blood? Notice, righteous anger is not a bad thing. But the execution of rectifying it has to be put in the hands of the right person. Get out of God's way. Let him do it. Now look at this. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. I want to give this to you quickly. I'm not trying to keep us for a long period of time. I know we're running there. My goal is to preach shorter and us have more time for prayer. I know I'm not hitting that, but this is an important thing for us to understand about how we operate with one another. How do you give room to God? Number one, your mind has got to be set on the attributes of God. Let me give you some real quick. Attributes of God that would help us thinking about a situation where we've been wronged and we need to leave room for him. Here we go. We got it? Number one, his omniscience. The fact that he's all-knowing. God knows the entire situation completely. When somebody wronged us, they know it all. He knows it all. The Trinity's probably already had a conference about it. And they know how to deal with it. Even down to the intentions of each person's heart. He even knows where we're wrong in our response to it. Number two, his justice. God knows the exact measurements of the wrong of all parties involved. And he is not swayed by people's opinions and you can't buy him off and corrupt justice in that way. He makes sure that justice is taken care of perfectly. The next one. How about his goodness? Sometimes we forget in bad situations that God is compassionate, especially to the wrongdoer. Isn't Christ's heart for sinners? Absolutely. Just because you're angry at that sinner doesn't mean that all of a sudden he's super angry at that sinner. His heart is for broken people. His vengeance against them is tempered with his goodness so that his wrath is exact and not excessive. How about his eternality? God has seen every wrong imaginable. And if you think about it, like David said, Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned. Every sin is a sin against God before it was ever a sin against us. Every one of them. The last one. These are just five that I could think of to put out in front of you. His mercy. God has been wronged in every possible way. It's first against him. It's always personal. He always takes sin personal. It cost him his son. Do you think that's a personal situation? It cost him his son. He's always been wrong to a greater degree. Notice it says here, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him a drink. Gosh, that's not the natural reaction. No, it's not. It's a supernatural reaction. One that the scriptures conduct us to enact. Because by doing so, you might heap burning coals on his head. Now you might say, yeah, by doing good stuff, I'm finally getting in there. Wouldn't that contradict what you just saw about leaving room for God's vengeance, if that's what it meant? Here's what it means. Back in the first century, your neighbor had to keep coal going in order to stay warm. But there were times when coal would burn out. And all of a sudden, you've got a cold night where your neighbor is in need of some heat. And so they would come over to your house, right? You're opening the door at 2 a.m. They need some coal. And they would usually carry the coal on their heads in order to transport it. And so what you do is you fill their bucket with coal. It's not just, here's a couple, I hope it lasts you till you get home. That's not it overflow their bucket with coal so that when they get home, they can warm their entire house for quite a long time. On the way, 
some of those briquettes or whatever they are. Am I saying that right, Terry? I'd look for you for like man stuff. Is that right? Okay, good. Good. I don't know. I'm wearing my catching deer shirt tonight to the wild game feed, okay? That's where I'm at. Some of those would fall off and hit them. And it was a very quick reminder, even though it hurt, even though it burned for a second, of the overflowing goodness that their neighbor had shown to them. In that way, as far as what our role should be, what place should we take? Not the place of vengeance, that's God's place. The place you take is whatever enemy is upset with you, feed them, keep them warm, give them something to drink. Because if not, last verse, you will be overcome by evil. Evil is always looking for an opportunity to reign in the Christian's life. But by doing good, you substitute the opportunity for evil. In fact, think about this. When is a Christian not sinning? We've talked about this. When they're what? When they're obeying. When you are obeying the Lord, you're not sinning. Sin is not going on in your life when you are obeying Him. I thought sin was going on all the time. Not not when you're obeying the Lord. Sin is at bay. In fact, you don't have time to sin because you're too busy obeying Him. What has the Scripture said for our personal reflection? Well, walk through and think about it. If someone's done evil against you, saved or unsaved, don't pay them back with evil. Instead, the decision you make, try to be right. Look for what's right. Not that you're right, but look for the right thing so that everyone else can see that and rejoice in it. Is there a friction that is happening? Well, if it's possible with you, try to be at peace with one another. Try to make peace in that situation. Don't take your own revenge. That's not your place. That's not my place. It's the Lord's place. And because of who he is and his attributes, he can do that perfectly. It's not even a situation we've got to worry about. It's not something we've got to take into our own hands because we can't control people. We can only control ourselves. Notice the choice instead is, is if my enemy's hungry, feed him. If my enemy's thirsty, give him something to drink. My enemy has lost his warmth. Give him something warm. Show love. Because let's be honest, isn't that what they need? Notice they don't need a smack in the nose. That's not doing any good. What they need is selfless care and concern that expects nothing in return. They need agape. Now, hopefully you've written down something on your papers. If you'll notice on the back of your paper here, your notes, you've got down at the bottom. Maybe you couldn't come up with anything. That's okay. I came up with something for you. Lord, because of what I've heard and because of what I now know, show me how my life should be different. Simply praying something like that, God can begin a progressive work in us that will change our hearts and minds to be more conformed to the image of Christ. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take three to five minutes and have a time of personal prayer. Not a time to talk. It's a time of silence, just like we do with 1 John 1, 9. It's a time between you and the Lord alone because here's what you don't want. God's word being inerrant as it is, you don't want to walk out of these doors and be the exact same person you were when you came in. God is here to do a transformative work through his word. That's what he does. The word the indwelling spirit together to change us. Let's take a few moments to pray. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful that your desire for us is to change us into the image of your son. That you always seek to work toward that end. You do so by your word. 
And since all of us deal in relationships, all of us are interconnected, we are all members of Christ's body. These words may be very fresh, very pertinent to our time, our situation. Sometimes when we get hit with how others have wronged us, we ask the question, how do I move forward? How do I deal with this? How do I do so in such a way where I know it's right, that it was the right decision to make? Your word does not lie. It leads us in paths of righteousness. So Lord, give us minds that make the correct choices so that we will be conduits of your truth and exhibitors of your grace. That we would not pay back evil for evil. That we would carefully contemplate those things that are right. That we would seek to live at peace when it is possible. That we would never trespass on your area of vengeance in a situation. But those who are enemy, we would feed. And we would give drink that we would love. We know that the enemy is looking for every opportunity to get us in a path of evil. Father, I pray that by doing good, we will conquer, we will overcome evil. So Father, may our singing today be with a clear heart, a clear conscience, because we brought these things to you. We've sought your uh, changing work in our lives, as only your spirit can do. And that we are anticipating greater conformity to Christ our Lord. And we pray it in his name.